0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a craft fair and bake sale, but it's also about survival. A weekly marketplace so people migrating from the southern border can sell stuff and earn money to live. Isabel Caceres made cupcakes. And hopes to reestablish herself as a businesswoman. Also, Denver's mayor travels to Washington, pressing for more support for migrants. Then Aurora's police department is in flux. We'll talk about the challenges APD has finding a chief. Policing has changed so much. I'm not exactly sure the field is changing as fast as people's standards, if you will. And it remains the hottest ticket in town, Casa Bonita. We take you inside. It's another chance to meet the new head
1: chef. I'm Arna Kaplan, a Legacy Circle member. Over the years, CPR has opened my eyes to new ideas, kept me informed about important issues, entertained me with stories and music, and has been a bastion of responsible journalism. When my husband and I updated our estate plan, we wanted to ensure that future listeners would reap the same benefits that we have. We hope you, too, will become a Legacy Circle member. Learn more at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. People coming to Colorado from the southern border tell us over and over again they want to find work to build a better life. Now a handful of them have an opportunity through a kind of craft fair. CPR's Rachel Esterbrook went to check it out. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. Very curious about this marketplace and what it says about the broader issue with tens of thousands of people arriving from the border.
1: Yes, more than 37,000 people have made that journey to Colorado in the past year or so. Many of them come from Venezuela. People are fleeing from other South American countries as well and African nations We can't say precisely how many of the 37,000 migrants have chosen to stay in Colorado because no one keeps track of that sort of thing, but thousands have for sure. And as you suggested, they don't have an easy time finding work.
0: And why is that?
1: They can't apply for work legally for many months, even if they intend to file for asylum. And while they wait out that judicial process, they don't just want to rely on government or nonprofit aid. So in one neighborhood, folks have come together to offer an alternative, this marketplace I went to on Tuesday.
0: Yeah, where was it? And what was it like?
1: You may be familiar with Stanley Marketplace, the dining and shopping space.
0: Oh, yeah, on the Denver Aurora line in the old ejector seat factory.
1: (laughs) Well, on Tuesdays this month, in one of the retail spaces... People who've recently migrated are invited to set up tables and sell things. That could be crafts like dog leashes or keychains. It could be food. Or it could be services like hair braiding and fitness classes. I saw all of those things.
2: Hello!
3: Yes.
4: Cinco dollars, approximately. (laughs) Uh (sharp)
3: <in>
1: Yaeli Peña was selling pasteles oh, no. venezolanos. <speaking in Spanish> They're like empanadas, but with flakier dough, almost like a croissant, she said. Oh, yum. She had chicken and vegetarian, five bucks each. Si, se llama pasteles
3: venezolanos. Es parecido a la empanada, pero no es empanada. ¿Por qué? Porque es una masa hecha a Base arena de
1: trigo.
3: This was her third
1: time coming to this market, and she said in past weeks she's made three hundred dollars in a day, counting sales and tips.
0: Three hundred bucks, that's real money.
1: It is. And she's not a chef by trade. In fact, It's her husband who makes the pasteles. He was a chef in Venezuela and Colombia, and now he cooks at a private school in Colorado. Her job is to be the saleswoman.
0: Oh, this is a true partnership.
1: Absolutely. Pena said she'd studied business administration before coming to the U.S. She also worked as a waitress and a cashier. She's 22, And she hopes to find a job in marketing, sales, or business here. So selling these pasteles is right in her sweet spot. She loves interacting with customers. But she knows she has to learn English first. So she's working on that while helping support her family, including her son, who's three, she says she's committed to building a life in Colorado.
3: And
1: needing to spend time with her son, that's another reason that this market is such a great opportunity. She can plan ahead, come for a day and leave.
0: There's that flexibility. How did this market come about, Rachel?
1: It started with people who live in the area connecting on Facebook. One of the organizers had actually met a professional boxer who had recently migrated here, and this organizer wanted to find a way for him to teach boxing classes. Ah. They were going to do it in a park, and the idea grew from there. So it's a collection of locals who've done things individually, like drop off food or clothes for people they met on the street or at a shelter. And over time, these folks have connected with each other, like Liliana Flores Amaro. She said she's motivated to help because she's first generation, born in this country, and has many relatives who've had. The experience themselves of immigrating to the U.S., now Flores Amaro is paying it forward. We wanted to create a space that really helps people showcase their skills and to earn an income. And I think not only are they, you know, earning some money and making some money by donation, but I think they're also getting connected to each other and building that network with each other and with other volunteers in the network as well. And the customers I talked to said they had come to shop because they'd heard about the market on Facebook.
0: Where this all began. Um, How long will it continue?
1: The next couple of Tuesdays in January, Stanley Marketplace General Manager Ali Ferdin says they may extend into February depending on whether there's space available in the building. Frieden says Stanley Marketplace sees this as part of its mission, to encourage community. And she got emotional talking about the people she's met who have migrated here recently. I really hope at the end of the day that they are able to use this or a like experience as a way to really build upon a new future for themselves. I hope that they get their work, proper work visas, right? And in the meantime, anything they can do to to make some money, um, I just, I hope that they can continue to do events like this. I'll note too that Ferdin says Stanley does not take a cut, that all the sales and tips go to the vendors.
0: I do wonder if there are some legal sensitivities here.
1: I think there are. Um, Fredine says there are some services that they can't offer legally at the market, like they can't do manicures in the space because that's a licensed profession. Yeah, and a
0: health thing. Who else was at this market selling stuff?
1: Well, first, I have to tell you that in a hallway, there was a clown. Okay. A man named Jesus Rafael Abreu, who's from Venezuela. He was in the middle of his act when I saw him, which it was pretty interactive with parents and children, but mostly through gestures, given the language barrier, like he was trying to get two women to hold a string tightly so that he could roll something down. Fuerte. Fuerte. Si? Así. Oh yeah. Back inside the market, Isabel Casares had an array of photogenic cupcakes in bright pink and purple, flavors like blackberry, vanilla, dulce de leche just like Peña Casares talked about how she wants to establish herself as a businesswoman or in her case reestablish herself mm. because she baked in Peru where, which is where she's from she used to personalize cakes and cookies things like that básicamente
3: yo quiero realizarme
1: como mujer madre emprendedora
3: entonces haciendo esto es reactivándome yo como mujer y a la vez me da un ingreso She's been in
1: Denver less than a month with her husband and their infant. They're staying in a shelter, and her husband has not been able to find work that he can get transportation to. He was an elementary school teacher in Peru, but she said he'd do almost anything here to earn some money.
0: Now, Peru is not one of the countries we often hear about people coming here from, I mean, at least recently.
1: It's not, but she says she has met other Peruvians making the journey and here in the shelter, PERU HAS EXPERIENCED POLITICAL VIOLENCE RECENTLY. Caceres WAS FEARFUL LIVING THERE, PARTICULARLY WITH HER BABY.
0: DID ANY OF THE VENDORS TELL YOU MORE ABOUT WHY THEY LEFT THEIR HOME COUNTRIES AND CHOSE COLORADO? uh, AND PERHAPS WHAT THEY ENDURED TO GET HERE?
1: I THINK MOST PEOPLE UNDERSTAND THAT THE SITUATION IN VENEZUELA IS A DISASTER POLITICALLY, ECONOMICALLY, AND IN TERMS OF ACCESS TO BASIC THINGS LIKE FUEL FOR YOUR CAR OR YOUR HOUSE. Yale Pena, whom you'll remember, she studied business in Venezuela. She traveled for about a month with her sister, also her husband and their child. They went three days in the jungle without eating. They just had water, candy, and a pacifier for the child. She said going through Mexico was particularly awful. She had distant relatives who basically invited her to come here and said that they would help her get oriented, which they have to the best of their abilities. Peña's family started in a city shelter, and they have moved into a basement apartment where they pay pretty low rent, and in exchange, they do work around the house for the landlady.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's Rachel Estabrook joins us she recently paid a visit to a marketplace, a kind of craft fair on the Denver Aurora line where recent migrants are selling wares and trying to make a life for themselves as they await the ability to legally work. And, and what are their prospects here?
1: First, they have to come up with the money to file for asylum, and that application can take months to prepare. Once it's submitted, they wait several more months, then they can apply for temporary work permits. Casares from Peru is under ICE supervision. She has to send pictures each week to U.S. immigration authorities. Huh. This is a strategy that the Biden administration has amped up. Instead of keeping people in detention, they release them but require contact on special phones or apps. Casares has a follow up appointment with an immigration judge in June. But it's very hard to win an asylum case. More than half of them get rejected.
0: Rachel, you talked about this market being the product of volunteer community effort. What are other ways that we see Coloradans responding?
1: We've noticed people hiring migrants without work authorization for small gigs like house cleaning and landscaping, Spanish lessons, doing hair and nails, or childcare. Coloradans are also donating through the Newcomers Fund. It's administered by a private foundation, the Rose Community Foundation. When people donate money, it gets distributed through nonprofits on the front lines. Some people have offered housing or reduced rent for extra spaces in their homes or ADUs, stuff like that. Then if you've looked on Facebook, you may have noticed clothing drives Our colleagues at Denverite actually wrote this all up recently, including places to drop off supplies if you're so inclined. And we can link to that story on the Colorado Matters page.
0: That's CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. Rachel, thanks so much. You're welcome. Our producer, Rachel Estabrook, on the migrant market known as Finding Their Way, hosted weekly in January at Stanley Marketplace in Aurora. Meantime, Denver's mayor has a message for the federal government. Let migrants get to work. Mike Johnston was in Washington, where CPR's Caitlin Kim reports he had backing from some of Colorado's members of Congress.
5: It's no secret that Denver has seen a large influx of migrants seeking asylum, arriving on buses from other states. This week, Mayor Mike Johnston was the one traveling, stopping at Capitol Hill, where he urged both chambers to take action on the migrant crisis. He wants financial help for cities, but even more importantly.
6: Work authorization so that folks arrive in the United States and arrive in Denver with the ability to do what they want to do, which is to work to support themselves and their families. It means federal resources to make sure we can help support that integration.
5: He was joined by some Democratic members of the state's congressional delegation, including Senator Michael Bennett, who says Denver is doing its part. But
2: they are
4: not in charge of the immigration policy in the United States.
5: That's the role of the federal government.
4: We can't just fail, blame each other as we often do, walk away and say it's someone else's responsibility. This is our responsibility.
5: Immigration has been an intractable issue in Congress for decades, but the recent influx has put renewed pressure on Washington to act. And House Republicans are focused on one issue in particular, securing the border, House Speaker Mike Johnson. The House is ready to act, but the legislation has to solve the problem. And that that's the critical point. The House passed a Republican bill that has been a non-starter in the Senate, while the Senate is working on a bipartisan bill with the White House. Johnson won't say he'll bring that for a vote in his chamber. Instead, the speaker has repeatedly said that the president could use executive authority to deal with a border crisis. It underscores how much of a political hot potato this issue has become. Congresswoman Brittany Pedersen.
1: This should not be a partisan uh, tactic on winning elections. This is something that we have to come together in a bipartisan way.
5: In an election year, that may be near impossible to accomplish. Still, Mayor Johnston isn't giving up hope for help, if not from Congress, then the White House. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News.
0: When we come back, Aurora struggles to find a permanent police chief. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: Nothing chases away the winter chill quite like a good long soak in a hot spring. Colorado's Western Slope has dozens, from high-end resorts to wild springs in remote areas. Where can you find them and how exactly are hot springs created? CPR has those answers. Plus, learn more about the sacred significance of springs for our region's earliest residents, the Ute people. Soak it all up on Instagram. Find us at newscpr.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Aurora, the interim police chief, Art Acevedo, announced this week he's leaving. He's going back to Texas. That leaves an embattled police force without a leader yet again. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry covers the department, including the recent trials in the death of Elijah McClain. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. Give us a bit about Art Acevedo's background and why he's leaving.
2: Yeah, he's a big city police department guy. He came from Austin, where he was the chief of the police department there. Before that, he was in Houston and Miami. Um, he was brought in as an interim at the very end of 2022 in Aurora, and he left his family back in Texas. This is Acevedo talking this week to reporters.
6: For quite a few weeks, it's like, hey, we need you to lose the interim title. But I knew where my heart is. Every time I get a,
3: a video of my son wrestling, and I'm not there. I, I just—it wasn't them. It's me. I can't be without my boy, and I can't move him right now. So I got to get home to him because I want to be judged uh, as a father, uh, and, and, a, and, and family has to come first.
2: From a few conversations I've had with people on the inside of APD, I do think it was his choice to leave and to leave right now. The announcement was kind of sudden for everybody, and he, it came sort of right after he spent all this time with his family during the holidays.
0: How would you describe Acevedo's time as Aurora's interim chief?
2: In his 13 months, people thought he was very personable. He certainly liked to talk a lot. Uh, I've joked with other reporters that he's sometimes hard to get away from, which isn't usually a problem reporters have, as you know, Ryan. Um, He was warm. He looked you in the eyes. He liberally gave out his personal cell phone number. He talked about his experiences in bigger cities a lot. He tried to be disarming. Um, I talked to Hashim Coates. He's an Aurora community activist and a candidate for Arapahoe County commissioner.
0: So I met him, and... I became even more on guard because he was so personable. (laughs)
2: Um, Acevedo tangled with the union a bit, um, especially recently, and he was struggling with those relationships. And I think a lot of people... Wish that he would have been more transparent on the Jordel Richardson case. This oh. was the shooting death of a juvenile who was running away from police last June. The boy did have a gun at the time, but it was a BB gun. And it took Acevedo several days before he disclosed that detail. And that came after he had a meeting with the community about the shooting.
0: And here is Coz again. Mm-hmm. You know, police officers always want the public to say, believe,
4: hey, that we're human but they, they really want people to believe that they're perfect humans and the public knows that they're not perfect. So he
0: should have been transparent about the situations, about there might be other things that
4: come up. I mean, anyone with common sense understands that the police, being a cop is a hard job. So there will be situations that will cause an eyebrow to be raised.
0: But if you address it first, that helps to build trust. Allison, you've done a lot of reporting on police departments hiring and recruiting problems since George Floyd's murder, Mm -hmm. since the pandemic. Is Aurora different from other agencies? Are they having a harder time?
2: Well, I'd say Aurora PD has faced more headwinds than the average police department in Colorado in recent years and most of those headwinds are of their own making, uh, like the tragic death of Elijah McLean, which I've talked about on your show at length. Yep. But, you know, police departments, especially big city ones with more than a 1,000 officers and a lot going on, they often go through ups and downs. And Aurora, you may remember, was recognized nationally after the theater shooting in 2012 because of the officers' bravery. They stormed into the theater as a gunman was opening fire inside. Right. But then we had McClain's death in 2019, and it was kind of that, that entire incident was buried and closed. No one got disciplined right away. And that sowed so much community distrust. That, then we had the pandemic. And then there's this huge hiring crisis. And since all that, the agency's had three chiefs since 2022 when they fired Vanessa Wilson, a veteran officer with whom the community really loved. Um, now they have another interim, so they just have a lot of work to do.
0: As we said, Art Acevedo was an interim chief, and his replacement, Heather Morris, is also considered interim. So, what gives?
2: Well, you know, being a police chief is hard, right? And you have three sets of bosses. You, you, the the quote-unquote community, which is kind of amorphous, obviously. The mayor, or the city manager, or the city council. And you also have the rank-and-file cops who work for you. And Aurora just hasn't been able to find a permanent person who makes everybody happy. You know, I talked to Chuck Wexler. He works for the Police Executive Research Forum. It's a D.C.-based think tank that does training, studies policing around the country. He says the vacuum at the top is common right now because there are so many demands demands on police agencies? Hmm. Policing
0: has changed so much in the last five years. I'm not exactly sure that the field is changing as fast as, as people's standards are, if you will. You know, what they're looking for, what success might look like to uh, a city and what the, the pool of applicants, where they're at and where that city is at, It's going to be hard to find to to make that match.
2: In other words, people are demanding police change. And I think in many ways those changes have been positive. But there aren't enough rank and file officers thinking in that progressive changing direction to fill those leadership holes around the country. And Wexler says agencies just need to keep training on that and build the bench.
0: We are putting into context the vacuum of leadership at the top of the Aurora Police Department. Aurora has had permanent police chief candidates. What happened to them, Alice and Sherry?
2: Yeah, they've done several national searches and they had candidates and they all dropped out at various stages in the process, you know, after a hard community meeting or whatever. So now they have this Heather Morris, she was the deputy chief before, as another interim chief. She was a pick of Acevedo's. She came from Houston where she was the deputy chief there. She did move her family to Colorado, though, as opposed to Acevedo, and I imagine she goes for the job, but I do think they're going to do another national search.
0: Okay, the Aurora Police Department has had four chiefs. Interim or otherwise in the past five years,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, Morris becomes the fifth when she takes over. I think that's Monday finding a permanent chief is only part of the challenge, though, right? I mean, isn't the department also short on officers?
2: Yeah, like a lot of agencies, they've struggled to fill positions for a while. It hit a six-year low of sworn officers just last year. Acevedo did tell the Aurora Sentinel that the staffing shortage has hurt the department's visibility in the community, and it's added to the perception that the the people who commit crimes won't have any consequences.
0: It may not be direct cause and effect, but do the crime statistics actually reflect that?
2: Yeah, and it kind of is a cause and effect. You know, Aurora is immersed in much higher violent crime than it's had in previous years, even three, four, five years ago. Our colleague Ben Marcus crunched FBI numbers and found that homicides in Aurora jumped from just 18... In 2018, to 54 in 2022. Right. That's a big jump. Yeah. And they aren't solving many of these crimes either, according to the FBI data. So the vacuum at the top has reverberations across the department.
0: Aurora police officer Nathan Woodyard also resigned from the department just days before Acevedo's announcement. Woodyard put Elijah McClain in a neck hole that caused McClain to lose consciousness. He was acquitted of wrongdoing and the city had to pay him more than $200,000 in back pay from while he was suspended. Mm -hmm. I'll note that one officer and two paramedics were found guilty of the lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide. Uh, How much of a specter do you think all that still holds for the department?
2: You know, uh, a little. I, I don't think, um, I didn't think that Woodyard would probably stay on with APD because Acevedo was really blunt about not putting him back out on patrol once he got back on into the job or interacting with the public. You know, it was a civil service requirement that he get that back pay. That wasn't a decision by Acevedo. And so I think, you know, he goes back, he collects his back pay, and then he goes to find another police job where he can actually be out and not sitting at a desk. Acevedo said at the time that Woodyard, would put himself and other officers at risk if he was out on patrol. So, you know, he would have been inside.
0: Well, whoever the permanent Aurora police chief is in the future, they will also have to deal with the consent decree, and that's the agreement with the state of Colorado that Aurora will reform its policies and practices Mm -hmm. uh, that have been found, frankly, to be racially biased. So that is another challenge that awaits the leadership, whatever form that takes. Allison, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry on the turnover at the top of the Aurora Police Department. We're back in just a moment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
1: Home solar can help fight climate change, but that doesn't mean you should believe an ad like this one.
5: Would you take a Tesla Powerwall and brand new solar panels at no cost? Then you need to watch this before this program is gone for good.
1: The truth behind those social media solar ads many Coloradans are seeing on the latest episode of Colorado Wonders at CPR.org.
4: With support from the Colorado Health Foundation,
0: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Casa Bonita, the restaurant slash amusement park in Lakewood, became as famous for its questionable food as its cliff divers, which is why the new owners, the creators of South Park, brought on a new chef, one who's already made a mark on Colorado's food scene, Donna Rodriguez. I met her in front of Casa Bonita 2.0. It's been open for about six months now, still on a limited basis, as they work through their wait list and perfect the operation. A note that our chat from October got a little salty, not just talking about the margarita rims. There will be some bleeps. Welcome. Thank you.
3: Welcome to Casa. Look at that fun. It sounds amazing.
0: The pepto- it smells really good. It smells really good. <laughs> the Pepto Bismol paint looks great. Right? Did this place mean anything to you before you got associated with the project?
3: Uh, well, it means it's, it's like a movie to me because I came and applied here in 1998 and I didn't get the job.
0: What was the job?
3: I applied for a dishwasher. And applied I, wasn't, to- I wasn't qualified. So they say no to me, and then I go into my journey, and then I come back. So it's awesome. It feels really good.
0: And now you're in charge of the food.
3: All right. Here is the entrance. Welcome to Casa.
0: It reminds me of the original. It just, everything looks fresher.
3: It smells good. It's fresh. It's clean.
0: It's funny, you've twice mentioned smell. Was, oh. that, was that a complaint it people was, had?
3: It, always. It was like the first thing that people always talk about it. I mean, that pool has been open since 1973, 74. The most important thing, you know, for Matt and Troy is like, they want to change nothing and improve everything. We've been saying this forever. The queue line here is one of the things that everybody remember. You can buy a ticket to go straight to your table, but most of the people, they choose to go back to the old school. So that's what I'm going to walk you
0: Okay, you have the option of table service, but people want that old feeling that they probably had as a kid of waiting in line with a tray.
3: And this is a total new building that we add. And we turn it into Oaxaca Plaza.
0: And it's got those beautiful little flags.
3: Yeah, and the colors and everything are, are perfect, right? Everything looks like, you know, the little houses there and all of that and then that's where you order your food. I want enchiladas, I want relleno, versus when you go to the table, you order there with your server, like in a normal restaurant.
0: This is a pretty ornate frame over a giant menu, and yep. the dishes are, wow, you have mole?
3: I do have mole. My gosh,
0: it's one of my favorite dishes.
3: We keep Saviche-
0: the enchiladas.
3: Enchiladas? Yeah, I mean, we keep a few, taco salad, enchiladas, pork, Um, rice and beans, and of course the sopapillas from the old menu, but I wanted to do it in my own way. You know, like the enchiladas, we make the tortillas in house. We bring the Mexican cheese. We make the red chili and the green chili here.
0: I can't believe there is ceviche,
3: It is shrimp
0: ceviche. Did you think of that?
3: Of course. The way that I create my menus, I try to be 80% gluten-free. I want to be conscious of the people or generation now, have a lot of allergies, and I want to make sure I have something for everyone. So I create things that they are vegan, vegetarian, meat, and I always like to have fish on the menu too. So I try like adobo shrimp. So it was like a red chili with um, butter and garlic, and it was delicious. But then I realized in the first practice weeks that we put it there and then in 10 minutes, you know, the shrimp, if it keeps cooking, it turns like in a piece of plastic. Uh-huh. So I'm like, oh, I cannot do that. And as much as I wanted to make good quality food, it's hard because it's a huge venue. You know, you're going to be able to do, I don't know, 5,000 plates. So I wanted to do it right. And I say, OK, let's do shrimp, but let's do it in a different way that is not going to. You know, change the consistency or the quality. Right, because if it's ceviche, ceviche, yeah,
0: if it's a fresh shrimp, not a cooked shrimp, then you don't have to worry about rubbery shrimp. Yep.
3: Yeah. And it lasts longer, like, during the day. Like, if you're going to have it in the cooler, it's fine.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up, because one of my questions was what the quality control is when the quantity of service is so voluminous. And you're not even at capacity at this point.
3: No. We've been doing a thousand people a day on the double days. That is Saturdays. We do twenty-two hundred people. Uh, but we designed, you know, I designed these kitchens to be efficient, to be high volume. Same thing with the bars. When we do all the design, it was just to be able to do five thousand people a day. We wanted to do five turns, six turns. So we're not there yet, but everything is built. To go that way including Uh the menus the drinks and the food.
0: So this is a dry run you guys are still working the kinks out.
3: Absolutely.
0: Because when people found out I was going to interview you the number one question (laughs) was when will it be open to everyone?
3: We are open to the public the difference is like it's not the big line that we used to do it's more like a ticket and they want to do it right He's going to be opening more days eventually, and then more seatings. So we're going to slowly, but surely.
0: So no date specific yet for a general opening? No. Okay. Not yet. I would love to see the dining room and okay. talk more about your fantastic culinary journey and we'll your go vision.
3: through that little door. Okay. Then you walk through... Abuelita's casa is a grandma. Casa
0: de la abuelita. Yeah. The house of little grandma.
3: Yes. And sometimes grandma's, you know, yes, on the chair making a dress for the granddaughter. And, you know, it's a cute thing that kids love.
0: It looks like a little living room. There's a sewing machine, a rocking chair, an old telephone.
3: And this is Abuelita's courtyard. You know, Abuelita's always have plants all over. And then from Abuelita's, we're going to the tortillería. We make the tortillas in-house. And I want to show, like, from having the flour over there that is not just a show, sometimes they knock on the window to get tortillas for the kids.
0: When you were growing up in Chihuahua, Mexico, I think you used to grind corn to make masa for tortillas. Yes. This is a tradition for you since your earliest years.
3: Since you were born, that's the first sound probably you hear instead of hearing the bottle. For the babies, is the corn grinding your mom <laughs> or your grandma. Like, that's in our every day.
0: You also did butchery with your dad, didn't I you? I did, yes. Does that still come in
3: handy? Absolutely. Like, I, I learn more here with my mentors. Obviously, in Chihuahua, we don't have fish. So I learn how to do whole fish here, like 200 pounds halibut here. I do goats, lambs, pigs. Uh, we can do cows. Chickens, all of that. And I love that because then you utilize everything. You make sausages with all the leftovers. So, Working Class is the perfect place for that menu. So, we do that a lot at Working Class. Yeah,
0: Working Class is another of your restaurants. Yeah. Casa Bonita, not your only gig. You've got mm-hmm. Super Mega Bien, Cantina Loca. There's your tequila brand, Doña Loca. Yep. Can I pick up on this word, Loca? Crazy? Yeah. Because your bio says you're crazy, (laughs) but in the best way possible.
3: Absolutely. What does that mean? It means that you're unstoppable. You keep trying and you try to do the right thing all the time and you have no fear to keep going.
0: And why is that crazy?
3: Well, crazy comes from a different story. I think it's crazy because not everybody has that, I feel like a superpower inside, like keep going. If you fail, get up and keep running. You know, that's to me. For a lot of people, is that you're crazy. Can you stop? But the crazy story came from a different. When I start at Panzano, uh, I used to have this manager. He called me all the time, like speak English. I don't understand what you say. And I go home and cry for months. And one day I'm like, I'm f-ing done with this. Sh-t. I'm done. So I didn't cost at all. Like I came from Mexico going to, my mom was Christian to the bones. Mm -hmm. Like I went to Christian school, like no bad words, like good girl.
0: And you get to Ponzano, let me say, this is an Italian restaurant in downtown. You began there as a dishwasher. Yes. Uh, This is also where the chef discovered your talent, Yes. realized your talent, and change the course of your life.
3: Absolutely. But
0: keep telling this story.
3: So, the interesting part is that I came in a play at Casa. They say no. I went, Panzano was the second restaurant, and they hired me immediately. They're about to open. So, that's how I meet my mentors. And Jen is like, Dana, you're going to be the sous chef. And I say, no. I mean, My Spanish is pretty rough still. But back then, it was hard to communicate with people. And Jen is Jen Jaczynski. Yes. And it's an open kitchen. So you're in front of customers. You're in front of the servers. So I hesitate for the first time. Like, no, not ready. She's like, okay, let, let me train you a little bit more and train you a little bit more. Finally, I say, okay, I'm ready. And I go for it. And then our manager, he's always like, I don't understand what you say. Speak English. It's an open kitchen. So I was sad and crying. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. One day, it was an uh, Easter weekend. Okay. Busy. You know, like hotels, and everybody get busy for Easter. Right. So I was, was
0: attached to a oh hotel. Yeah, to
3: the Monaco Hotel. So it was a Saturday night. We're super busy. Open kitchen. And he, he came to me, like, as soon as I started running the line. And he's like... Jane, I speak English. I don't understand what you say. And literally, I feel like something hot on my body. I always tell people that story, like hot, like heat. And I, my, my blood was boiling. And I turn around and I say, well, you. Do you understand that? And then he turned around. He looked at me. He say, you're local. And then I turn around and I say, by the way, loca, I'm a girl, Loka. not a boy, Not loco, no loco. <laughs> <laughs> so since then everybody's like, hey loca, hey loca, and it becomes a thing, and you know, I take the advantage of that, because a lot of people don't know my name, my name is Dana, you know, in Spanish, but everybody read it as Dana, so I'm like, just call me loca, and everybody start calling me loca, instead of Dana, Diana, Donna, Diana, like so many, I'm like, loca, so everybody call me loca,
0: We're spending some time with Chef Donna Rodriguez. She's behind the culinary reboot of Casa Bonita in Lakewood. When I met her at the restaurant slash theme park, I had some customer reviews in hand. Uh Uh-oh. Can I read one to you? (laughs) Of course. The food is good. No more slop.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good one.
0: It's a high compliment. (laughs) It is. To have your food called No More Slop. I know. But I I wonder if it felt like a challenge to both keep the things that had been on the menu, but also elevate them.
3: It is a challenge because I like to use quality product. I don't like to buy like canned cheese that I can put on top of the enchiladas. We grind the cheese here. We make the enchiladas. We cook it every 10 minutes when we open for service so I keep it fresh. And, you know, the challenge is, like, it's a lot of bad reviews, too. And people are still like, I like the old food better. And other people is like, did you get sick? I didn't. Okay. So it's a lot of going back and forth. I don't read everything because then it will get in my head. Uh My hardest challenge is, like, I want people to eat hot food hot yes yes what
0: an interesting thing anyone who's made a big meal for the holidays yeah and you know has been in charge of the entree and the side dishes and the dessert and the and knows how difficult it is to keep everything hot for the moment of service
3: well the challenge is like this place is massive it's 60,000 square feet facility. To be wandering around with your tray, if you have like a, I don't know, grandma and three kids and you walk in very slow, it's gonna take you like five, seven minutes to get to your table. For the time that you see it and you put everybody around the table, your food is not hot the way that huh. I want it. So we have a lot of challenges and what I change on the menu is that I want most everything on sauces, that it lasts longer with the temperature. Interesting. So I have like the suadero, which is the brisket is cooking green chili, and when I serve it, like, put extra green chili on top so it lasts a little bit longer until you get there. Rice and beans, they get a little bit, like, warm temperature, but it's still really good. And we challenge. Like, before we open, we practice with the construction people, with our employees. Like, okay, everybody get online. Get your food. Go sit on the gold mines all the way there. Like, is the food still hot? How fast can we work? Like, we timing things. It's only so much that I can do when it's going to be 5,000 people, and it's a big line, and the grandma or my kids in front of me or, I don't know, a person with a broken leg is not going to be able to walk fast in front of you. So it's a lot of things that you cannot control. in control. Right.
0: But the point is, if you serve things in sauces, the sauces are like a warm yep. hug, a hot yep. hug yep. that keeps the, f- so the food. So they last longer, yeah. yeah.
3: And that's why the ceviche is cold. <laughs> because it's, it's easy to maintain a fish with that good quality as a ceviche versus a hot salmon that when it gets all the way there is going to be overcooked from the steam table, soggy and dry and cold, and your table. So it's like, I wanted to put things that I can control a little bit of the quality. So I designed three different kitchens. I designed production, which is all the shop, shop, cooking, prepping all morning. The second one over there is to keep everything hot when we open for service, so we keep everything fresh. So I have a an army of people like doing a, burgers every 10 minutes for kids, enchiladas every 10 minutes. We have beans cooking, like we always, um, it doesn't stop. They here like seven in the morning to midnight.
0: So you helped design the kitchens?
3: I did, I designed the kitchens.
0: Amazing, okay.
3: Yeah. And the bars a little bit because that's how I, that's what I do through my own restaurants. I build everything from the ground. And to me, I have to do it on the way that it feels efficient for me, that I can be able to execute this volume. So this is the other kitchen. This is for catering, for events, for the people that they order from the clip side where you came straight to your reservation. So even from here, and that's the battle that I tell you, like when they pick up the food here, I'm like, run. Like (laughs) you gotta get to the table.
0: You were the chef at the French restaurant Bistro Vendôme. And from time to time, customers wanted to give their compliments to the chef. And here's what you told me in 2014.
3: When I was at Bistro Vendôme, they request to talk to the chef. And there is a Mexican girl going up there and they're like, oh, not the dishwasher, the chef. And I'm like, that's me. (laughs) Absolutely. And it was a joke that we always talk about it. Everybody has, like, I can see on their face when they're like, oh, we're going to talk to the chef, and I showed up, and I'm like, I know. <laughs> Do you still face
0: that kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's prejudice. I don't know if it's poor assumptions.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's part of this industry. It's part of the reality, and it's part of life. It gave me, like, the gasoline to keep going. Mm. You know what I mean? So i still facing some of those things in here, like, You know, when they talk about the food, when they talk about how we design things, what kind of honey we use on the sopapillas, things like that, it's part of life and it's part of the culture in the industry.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the sopapillas. Mm -hmm. Do you still raise a little flag to get them?
3: Yep, we do. So we have the flags here and the design. I remember we talk a lot about this, how are we going to make it work this time? You know, when we start cleaning the old ones they were a little full of honey
5: <laughs> and
3: a little sticky so we decide to you know yes do a new design people ask I remember when we start building the menu and everything they say are you keeping divers sopapillas, and flags?" those are the three things that is the most memorable thing that everybody remembers from casa and
0: you can say yes yes and yes yes yeah
3: I say, I, I, I cannot tell you what else is going to change, but those, yes, yes, and yes.
0: <laughs> Did you change the Sopapia recipe in any way?
3: No, I didn't change it. I not even modify. I, here is the thing. When I was looking for old recipes, yeah. I have a recipe that I say, and I have a picture of that. 100 pounds, flour, water, lard, and that's it. And then I'm like, that's weird. There are no ratios. So in the beginning, they used to use lard, which is the pork fat. Uh, Now I use shortening because I wanted to keep it for the people that they wanted to eat with no, you know, no meat on it, animal product. Uh, So I changed it for that. And then I find the ratios, like trying the recipes, like, okay, let's start with 25 pounds of flour. And then the beauty is that I have right now 25 employees from the previous casa and they used to be the one who made the sopapillas. Oh. not the dough but they make they fry it and they serve it so i bring all of them and i say okay i'm testing these recipes because i want to make sure it's the same one so we try it and until they're like no it's too chewy no it's too hard no it's not the flavor no it's that and then we're like yep those are the ones so they we are make your it work.
0: continuity yeah. they they connect you yeah. to what was
3: and i think we make it work and they're happy, and they back to their own spot making sopapillas every day. Uh,
0: indeed, a lifetime ago, you started as a dishwasher at the Italian restaurant Panzano in downtown Denver. I wonder, do you connect with dishwashers in your restaurants today, with some type of encouragement or understanding?
3: I connect with every single one, and. The reason why is because I started as a dishwasher, and then I was the prep, and then I was the banquet, and then I was grill, satay, salads, and then I became the sushi. So I did all the steps. It's the part that I love the most. Being a mentor is that you don't have to be doing dishes forever. You're really good at cutting onions and pepper. You're going to be my next prep. I have this girl that she wanted to apply here as a server, before she was one of the cleaners in the construction and she said, I wanna work for you. I wanna go to school right now so I can learn a little bit of English and then I can be a and maybe a server. And I say, Why well, you don't start on the kitchen? So you understand everything. Like she showed the skills immediately and I say, Oh, that's what Jen see on myself when I was twenty two at Pansano doing dishes. Jen just in I want you to do exactly the same and that's what I've been doing with the people that they run my restaurants, is like First, because I'm a mom. Second, because I own business and they become your kids. So you want to be the mom and mentor to them all the time and say, oh, you're so good at this. Let's try something new. Let's do something different. Like pushing people in the good way, I think it comes from me because that's how I feel start my career and my life in mm-hmm. here. So,
0: Thank you so much for being with us. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Chef Donna Rodriguez is the culinary brains behind the new Casa Bonita in Lakewood. We spoke in October. The restaurant continues to operate in what it calls a beta test phase, which means no walk-ins for now, but limited invitations to people on its mailing list. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: One of the country's first rodeos took place in 1869 in Deer Trail, Colorado. Today, top rodeo prizes can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Back then, the winner won a new set of clothes. To start every year, cowboys and girls compete at the National Western Stock Show in Denver. Later in the year, weekly competitions in Steamboat Springs and annual events like the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo, Cattlemen's Days in Gunnison, and the Greeley Stampede, which was first called the Spud Rodeo in tribute to the potato crops around town. And celebrating all things rodeo all year round is the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs, For the people and animals who've made their marks in arenas around the country. Like the bucking bull who threw almost every rider who tried him before retirement in 1995. His name was Bodacious. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Kobel and Company. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR
0: News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's home to a rare blind bowling league. It's been active for more than 50 years. Here's Denverite's Kevin Beatty.
6: Veronica Rodriguez has on dark sunglasses, a wide grin, and a heavy ball ready to be let loose.
1: I'm following the rail, going up to where you throw your ball. And when I throw my ball, I say, come on, come on, come on.
6: (laughs) Welcome to Crown Lanes in Southwest Denver. And most Saturdays, you'll find Rodriguez here, playing with the Colorado Blind Bowling Association. That's it. She and a few friends started this league in the 1970s. They're about 35 strong now, with plenty of new faces. Marlene Kaiser, who co-founded the league, brought a lot of them in. How did this come together?
0: Um, I think it was because there was a few of us that were bored.
6: Blind bowling is just bowling, except players who are partially or totally blind use rails to navigate to their lanes. And with the aid of a sighted teammate, learn about how many pins they've knocked down.
4: You got the one, two, four, seven, nine. You have to hit it between the one and the nine.
6: Sure, people are competitive here, but most people, like league president Paul Trujillo, just love to bowl. It's in my family, it's in my blood. But they didn't always have a way to play. Trujillo remembers sitting on the sidelines as a kid when everyone else in his family hunted pins. And I'm just watching it and I'm thinking, man, I want to do this. I hope I can do this someday. And then the summer I turned 19, I found out about the league through Marlene. I said, right on, I'm going to try to continue with what my family does. And I did it. In honoring his family, Trujillo found another one. The big reason people have stuck around so long? A tight community has grown here and they take care of each other. Like when Rodriguez recently found out she has cancer. Do you think that you'll be leaning on your friends here for emotional support as you're going through this?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're they're really supportive already.
6: These are special bonds, Kaiser says.
1: Yeah, we're a big
0: family, sure. If something happens to one of us it happens to all of us.
6: Bonds forged in a bowling alley that have lasted half a century.
0: John, I did get a spare time.
6: Kevin Beatty, Denverite.
0: Colorado Matters for today with thanks to a team that's in a league of its own.
4: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielich, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
2: Molly Cruz, Andrea
1: Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Folcher,
4: Matt Hers,
6: Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño,
5: Shane Rumsey, Chandra thomas Whitfield,
0: and I'm Ryan Warner. Keep it tuned to CPR News and KRCC.